Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. The book of Acts is full of miracles. We see apostles doing wonderful healings. But where are these miracles in today's world? There are a couple theories about this. And we see how maybe miracles are a bit different nowadays. You're listening to Signs and Wonders by Reverend Peter Yonker. We have four Bible readings this morning, not just one, four, all of them from the book of Acts as we get close to the end of our series. Um, I'm going to start, the first one I'm going to read is from Acts chapter 5. I'll read verses 12 through 16. And before I start, let me just contextualize these four readings. Early on in this sermon series, I was approached in the narthex by a congregation member who wanted to talk to me about the book of Acts. He had been studying the book of Acts at home, reading it as his devotions, and uh, had been enjoying that and, and wanted to share with me an observation. And he said, I know why so many people were converted. I know why those disciples got so many people to follow Jesus. It was because the Holy Spirit allowed them to do all those miracles. It was all those miracles that made those people follow Jesus. Well, that's a fair point. You read the book of Acts on every single page throughout the book, the disciples are able to do amazing miracles, not just regular miracles, but amazing miracles. There is a high density of miracles in Acts. And often the author of Acts, Luke, will call them signs and wonders, signs and wonders. And it's mentioned so often that it rises to a theme. Signs and wonders are something like a theme in the book of Acts. And I want to look at that theme today. What role do signs and wonders play in this book and in the church today? Let's start with Peter in Acts 5, starting at verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders, miracles, among the people. And all the believers met together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered, also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And all of them, all of them were healed. Now let's move forward to Acts chapter 9. We're still with Peter, starting at verse 32. Peter's healing of Aeneas. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Let's jump forward to the, towards the end of the book of Acts, Acts 19. Now we're going to hear Paul. Now Paul is in Ephesus. Let's read verses 11 and 12 of verse 19 and hear how God works through Paul. 
God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, writes Luke, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. And last but not least, Acts 14, we'll read the first three verses of Acts 14. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual to the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there boldly speaking for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. This is the word of the Lord. So what did we just hear there? This amazing testimony, right? People in Lydda and Sharon bringing the sick people out into the streets and laying them in mats so that if Peter walked by, maybe his shadow would fall across them and they'd be healed. People in Ephesus finding handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul had touched, probably in his work as a tent maker, taking them to the sick and the demon-possessed and touching them so that they were healed. Peter healing Aeneas and literally everyone in Lydda and Sharon, that's what it says, every single person in Lydda and Sharon turning to the Lord. People bringing their sick to Peter and to the rest of the disciples, the apostles, and all of them being healed. Every last one of them being healed. Miracles, signs and wonders. And I haven't even told you the most amazing of the miracles in the book of Acts. I haven't told you about Paul raising Eutychus from the dead and Peter raising Dorcas from the dead. Amazing stuff. Now, as I read about these miracles, let me ask you, what is your reaction? I have two reactions. My first reaction is gratitude and amazement at this wonderful thing God did back then. And I think to myself, man, I would love to have been in Ephesus and watched as Paul healed all those people and the spirit moved. What I wouldn't give to be beside Peter when he healed Aeneas and look out and see the looks on the people's faces. It would have been so good to see the Holy Spirit move like that. That would have been wonderful. That's my first reaction. And my second reaction is the reaction I'm sure many of you have, if not all of you, and that's this. Where are those signs and wonders in the church today? Where are those signs and wonders in my church today? When people brought their sick to Peter in Lydda and Sharon, it says he healed absolutely every single one of them. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he healed everybody. I've had lots of people bring me their sick, either personally or on the phone saying, please pray for so-and-so. And I've prayed for healing for every single one of them. And I promise you, my results fall far, 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 far short of that. I've never heard of a Christian Reformed minister whose handkerchief touched someone and cured them. I've never heard of a minister of any denomination whose shadow was able to make someone rise up and be well. What happened to the signs and wonders? Where did they go? Because 
we could sure use them, right? I know, you know, we all know, every single day we hear stories of people whose lives are a mess, who've been shattered by disease and situations. And how great would it be if I could walk up to some of those, that young mother with cancer, put my hand on her head and say, be healed, and she would be healed. How great would that be? Lord, that would be wonderful. Go to the person with addiction. Walk into that family who's been dealing with depression for 20 years, lay my hands on someone. And, Lord, that would be so wonderful. And I promise you, Lord, I would give you the glory. I wouldn't take the credit. I wouldn't make it about me. I would give you the glory. And you know what, Lord? So many people would be touched by that. If, if that could happen here, people out there would see and they'd start coming to church and there'd be a revival. I know it would do great things, Lord. And yet, where are the signs of wonders? We are not the first generation to notice this contrast between our experience and what we read in the book of Acts. This contrast between the density of the miracles there and what we experience today has been around already from the early church fathers. Augustine and John Chrysostom, great fathers of the early church, already wrote, and this is in the 4th and 5th century AD, they already wrote that they noticed that there was a difference between their experience and the book of Acts. Here's what Augustine wrote in the City of God. He wrote this, For even now, miracles are wrought in the name of Christ. Miracles still happen, he says. But they are not so brilliant or so conspicuous as to cause them to be published with such glory as accompanied former miracles. They happen, but they don't happen with near the intensity, he says. John Calvin also acknowledged that miracles are far less frequent in his day. There is an essay that Calvin wrote where he defended the Protestant Reformation because there were people who were charging that the Protestant Reformation couldn't be legitimate, couldn't be a movement of the Holy Spirit because it wasn't accompanied by signs and wonders. And if it was a true movement of the Holy Spirit, there would have been signs and wonders. Calvin defends himself against that charge and says, no, it is a true movement of the Holy Spirit, but he does admit that there aren't the kind of miracles that you find in Acts. So Augustine's experience is different than the church in Acts. John Calvin's experience is different than the church in Acts. Our experience is different than the church in Acts. What is going on? What can we say about signs and wonders? Well, a popular and very reformed way of expressing this, an explanation that's been given for a lot of years, is a view called cessationism. I don't know if you've heard of that. Cessationism. And cessationism is the belief that miracles and signs and wonders ceased at the end of the apostolic age. So the apostolic age is the time when the people who had actually walked with Jesus and been with Jesus were still alive. So the apostles were still alive. And this view holds that when they died and when the church was well established and especially important when scripture was in place... There was no need for miracles, and they would cease. They did cease. Um, a lot of conservative reform people hold to this view. A good example, B.B. Warfield. Does anyone know that name anymore? B.B. Warfield. Early 20th century, conservative, taught at Princeton Seminary. Here's what he wrote about this, this problem, this issue. God has given the world one organically complete revelation, the Bible. 
And he's adapted it to all, it's sufficient for all, it's provided for all. And from this one completed revelation from the Bible, he requires each of us to draw our whole spiritual sustenance. Therefore it is that the miraculous working, which is a sign of God's revealing power, cannot be expected to continue, and in point of fact, does not continue after the revelation of which the of which it is the accompaniment has been completed. That's dense theological language, but he's saying is once you got the Bible, you don't need miracles anymore, and so there are no more miracles. Cessationism. Is that right? Is that the best way to understand miracles and our relationship to them? I want to say more than this. And I'm going to lay some things, some ideas out in a moment, but before I do that, let me just say that ultimately what I'm doing is baptized speculation. I've prayed hard about this and worked on it hard this week, but here's the truth. Nobody knows why there's a difference between Acts and now, right? I don't know the minds of the Holy Spirit, and I don't know the mind of God on this issue, and anyone who pretends to speak with authority on exactly what God is doing is uh, clothing speculation with certainty and speaking more than they know. But I will, based on what I read in Scripture, hazard some guesses about what might be going on. First of all, let me say, I am not comfortable with cessationism. I am not a cessationist, at least not as B.B. Warfield has explained it here. I don't think miracles have completely stopped, and I don't think miracles have completely stopped because I have seen miracles. Here's the truth when you work as a pastor. Talk to individual people, probe their life, ask them questions, and pretty soon you will hear stories of signs and wonders. Mysterious, inexplicable events. Coincidences that go beyond human calculation. Miraculous healings. Near-death experiences. Listen to people's stories. Talk to them and you will hear stories of God moving in their way, moving in their life that can only be described as a sign and a wonder. Miracles still happen. They have not ceased. And yet, I do agree, to me, undeniably true, that they don't seem to happen at the intensity that they did in the book of Acts. Why might that be? Well, let me hazard a guess here and say maybe the cessationists have a point when they say that the Holy Spirit did more miracles at the beginning of the apostolic age as a way to establish the church and get it started. And now that the church has started and the Bible is here, miracles maybe don't cease, but maybe they've backed off in their intensity. And why would that be? Because miracles are never meant to be the main event of Christ's church. Miracles are not the main event of why we are here. We do not come to this place to see the sparkle, to see the flash of miracles. We come here to meet Jesus Christ and him crucified, to knit our life to his, to disciple ourselves to him, and learn the way of servant obedience on his paths. Miracles are not the main event. Miracles point to that crucified reality which is our main event. You hear that clearly in Acts 14, verse 3, which I read a little bit earlier. 
Acts 14 verse 3 does a wonderful job of showing how signs and wonders relate to the true gospel of God. Here's what it says. Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium. They are preaching and serving. And then this is what it says. The Lord confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So the the miracle of his grace, the gospel is the main thing. The signs and wonders enable that message, point to that message. You hear the same thing in Acts chapter 8, verse 6. This time it's Philip. Philip the deacon was also able to do lots of signs and wonders, and this is how Luke describes it. When the crowds heard Philip and the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. The signs pointed beyond themselves to the message that Philip was giving. Signs and wonders are not the main event. They're meant to point to the gospel of Jesus. So perhaps, and again, perhaps, the Holy Spirit has dialed back the intensity of the miracles for the same reason that Jesus would often tell people to be quiet after he did a miracle for them. You remember that, right? Jesus would do a miracle for people and then he would deliberately tell them, don't tell anyone about that. Jesus had this ambivalent relationship with his miracles. They were really important for a sign that he was the Messiah, but he did not want them to be the main event of his ministry. He understood that the cross and the work of the cross was the main event of his ministry. Why did Jesus tell people not to tell others about his miracles? Because he knew that miracles are shiny objects. Miracles are wonderful. They're dazzling And they tend to attract a crowd. And he didn't want all these people following him, looking for the miracles and not understanding his ultimate purpose. In fact, there are two times where Jesus refuses to do miracles. The people come to him looking for a shiny object. They say, hey, Jesus, we'll believe in you and this Messiah if you do one of your miracles. And Jesus says to them, you'll remember, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. When miracles become the main event of the church and the center of the church's proclamation, things have gotten out of whack. And this is a problem in today's church. If you look at some hyper-Pentecostalism, not all Pentecostals, hyper-Pentecostalism, some of the stuff you see on TV, where God's healing miracle or miracle of getting out of debt is held front and center, something has gone off kilter. Miracles are meant to point to the cross. In fact, one more qualifying thing. In Matthew 24, Jesus even says that some signs and wonders can be done on behalf of the other team. Just because a preacher claims to speak for God and works a miraculous sign doesn't necessarily mean they're a true prophet. I know that makes things complicated, but here's what Jesus said. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive gets very complicated. All this to say that miracles have never been at the center. The cross and the way of Christian discipleship and the way of the cross has always been at the center. What can we say about the miracles that still continue today? How do we understand them and their place? Here's my favorite image for what a miracle is. A miracle is a 60 degree day in February. If you come from a northern climate, which I do, my climate is more northern than your climate, 
Canada. If you come from a northern climate, you know that winters are long and they are hard, but once in a while, at the end of February, you'll get this wonderful 60-degree day. All of a sudden, the sun will come out, it'll warm the earth, and little children will put on t-shirts and ride their bikes, and it will be, it'll be like a gift. I remember when I was a kid, maybe 14 years old, we had, even in Canada, a 60-degree day, and my friends and I went over to his driveway, and we played basketball for two hours straight, and we took our shirts off, and we sweat in Canada in February. It was a miracle. Now, as great as that 60-degree day was, it would be foolish for us the next morning to get up and say, oh, where's my 60-degree day? I want another 60-degree day. I want 60 tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. If that became our focus. What we need to do is receive that day for what it is. A beautiful gift and a sign that spring is coming. Winter's hold is breaking the cold will end, the ice will break, and the eternal spring will come. So it is with miracles in the book of Acts and with miracles in our lives. They're not the main event, but they are signs in our lives that God is strong and Jesus is alive and his eternal spring is coming. And they're meant to give encouragement to us weary pilgrims as we go along our way. That's how Fleming Rutledge describes what a miracle did for her. Fleming Rutledge is a preacher. You've heard me mention her name before, probably. She's not just a preacher, she's a theologian. She writes great learned works of theology. Uh, she's very left-brained. She's not given to great outbursts of emotion. She'd fit very well in the Christian Reformed Church. When she was a young pastor, just starting out, she was called to a house of one of her parishioners because she was supposed to give counseling and, and minister to a young woman, just came out of an Ivy League school, who had suddenly been stricken with terrible arthritis. Arthritis so bad that it put her in a wheelchair and she couldn't move hardly. And as a young pastor, she was really nervous about that. She went over to the house, met this young woman in the backyard, sat in a chair in front of her wheelchair, talked to her, tried to comfort her, read scripture, and then, with no more expectation than she had ever had for any other prayer she prayed in her life, she did what she knew was expected of her. She put her hand on the girl's knee and prayed that the Lord would heal her. And Jesus did. Two weeks later, she got up out of her wheelchair and she walked like nothing had ever happened and she has had no recurrence in 20 years. Nothing like this has ever happened to me in my ministry before that or since, says Rutledge. It's not like this happens to her every day, but because it did happen every day, it gives for her the strong sense that she is not alone, that God is strong, that Jesus is alive, that the Spirit is moving, and that the eternal spring is coming. Now that I've told you this story, let her sign be your sign. For you exhausted parents trying to hold your family together and absolutely worn out by people who are driving you crazy, his eternal spring is coming. For you who have been living with depression in your family, which comes back 
like a cold wind over and over again and you've been trying to get rid of it and you've been trying to help someone you love with it and you don't know what to do anymore, his eternal spring is coming. To a young person here, trying to figure out your life and not sure who you are and what God wants from you and feeling so alone because you feel like nobody gets me, his eternal spring is coming. To all of us watching the news, seeing chaos in Afghanistan and misery in other places and wondering what in heaven's name is going on in this world, his eternal spring is coming. God is strong, Jesus is alive, his spirit is on the move, and his spring is coming. Amen. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for the way that you show your power in our lives. There's, there's so many things we don't understand about sometimes why we pray for people and they're not healed and, and why miracles happen sometimes and don't seem to happen in other times, Lord, but we know that you've given us the signs that your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we rest in that assurance, Lord. Lord, may the power of your Holy Spirit fill us with confidence and joy as we go to your world this week. May we be people of your eternal spring. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.